Alpha is a six-week course exploring the big questions of life. It's for anyone interested in discussing spirituality, God, and the Christian faith in a non-judgmental, open-minded context. Each week, there's a great meal, a short talk, and discussion in small groups. People who come to the course are from lots of different backgrounds. No faith, other faiths, brought up Christian and agnostic. Everyone is welcome. Catch up on each week's talk here. Um, so just a quick recap um, for those of you um, who weren't here last week. I talked a little bit about my own um, experience of spirituality, religion, Christianity growing up, uh, my going from being an atheist to then, despite all my best intentions, uh, coming to believe uh, in Jesus. And I talked about how we are all actually kind of looking for meaning. We are looking for purpose and who we are. And that the Christian claim really is that the only one who is adequately able to um, tell us who we are and what we are for is the God who made us. And that actually the Christian claim is that we are loved into being. It's his perfect love, not the conditional love, um, despite how important it is for us from other humans, but his love that actually loves us into the fullness of who we are. Um, and so, as I said last week, that can lead to a lot of questions. Not least, uh, well, how do we know that that is true? Why should I believe in Christianity at all? I know a lot of people have been brought up in the church, but often they can come to a place where they're going, wait a second, do I actually believe this at all? I know I was told it as a child, but do I believe it? We had a discussion in our group last uh, week about how many things had been told to be this is actually what the truth is but the longer that time's gone on we go wait a second I don't know if I think that maybe it's a bit grayer than that maybe it's not that at all so question one number one how do we know that it can be true and then um, I think probably as pertinent for a lot of people well if I do believe it's true what difference does it make I said that last week there was a recent stat about uh, Christianity in America and two-thirds of those who identify as Christians in this country say that their faith has no impact at all on their lives uh, in any tangible sense, which is quite interesting, isn't it? So is it true? And if it is true, how can it make um, more of an impact or any impact in my life? Those are the sort of two questions that we will look at for the remainder of the course. Tonight, I really want to go into a detailed um, uh, consideration of the first question. Why would anyone believe in Christianity in the first place? How do we know that it's true? Now, I need to acknowledge that for some people, objective questioning like this, i.e. where's the evidence, is what really excites them. That's what gets them out of bed in the morning. That's what they like. Give me some absolutes, give me some evidence, give me some rational arguments so that I can make up my mind. Other people, it's not that really that excites them. They're more interested in how does it make me feel? What difference does it make? Those more subjective questions. Well, tonight I need to acknowledge is mainly addressing those objective questions. But whilst that may not be appealing to some people, can I explain why it is important for all of us? Subjective feelings, as I'm sure you will know, cannot always be relied upon. They are very important, but they are fickle mistresses. Consider, after all, the scenario of your first love, your first crush. Cast your mind back to who that was and when that was. 
If you're still waiting for that, cast your mind to what that might be. But if you can imagine yourself back in middle school, your first crush, you see them from across the classroom, there they are, radiant in their beauty. You write their name on your notebook. You hope no one sees you write your name on their notebook. If they have an I in their name, rather than doing a dot on the I, you do a little heart for the dot of their I. You start to have feelings for them. You want to know where they are. You know whenever you walk into a room where they are in that room, and then you start talking. And they are even better when they start talking than you ever could imagine. And then you kiss. And it's beautiful and wonderful and your life is complete and nothing ever, ever will spoil this. And then they mercilessly, heartlessly break up with you and you don't know why and you are crushed and defeated. Your world is going to end. But then, a few years later, you bump into said old flame. And perhaps time has not been good to them. Perhaps they've let themselves go a little bit. And then you would be forgiven for thinking, what was I thinking? All that energy, all that time, all that emotion on that one person. And then I'm so glad I dodged that bullet. Subjective feelings. They can't always be trusted, can they? Objective arguments, by contrast, though, on the other hand, can always be returned to and assessed to see whether we think they are true or not. And so it is with God. I feel amazing when I go to church is great, but if that is all our faith is based on, we're on shaky ground if we don't feel great when we go to church or if we don't, haven't felt great when we go to church for quite a long time. I've considered the evidence that Jesus was who he said he was and I've found it convincing, on the other hand, is something we can always go back to irrespective of anything that's going on in our lives and particularly anything that we may or may not be feeling. So. With that said, let us consider what faith is and what faith is not. There are actually very few things that we can be completely 100% one uh, without any doubt certain about. One of those things is 2 plus 2 equals 4. You can be 100% completely certain that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but that's not much to actually base your life on. For everything else, in fact, in life, other than quite a lot of mathematical equations, we are operating by faith. We exercise faith when we order in a restaurant, we exercise faith when we choose shoes, we exercise faith when we pick a partner, we exercise faith especially when we get on the 101 and we put our lives in the hands of other LA drivers. We are exercising faith the whole time. But just to prove it to you, none of you, when you entered this room, checked beneath your seat to see if there was a bomb under it. But could you be certain there was not a bomb under your chair? No, you could not, but none of you checked because we are all operating by faith all the time. And Christian faith actually works in a very similar way. It is not absolute certainty. But that doesn't mean it's blind hope either. It's not Christian faith about shoving our heads in the sand, putting our fingers in our ears and saying, do not confuse me with the facts. I've got faith. And all I need is faith. Christian faith is rather born out of an initial conviction about Jesus. But it is also something that grows more and more the more we see him to be true, both objectively and subjectively. Consider my relationship with my wife, Hannah. Do you know how much faith we had in each other when we first got married? Enough faith to get married. 
which is all that anyone ever has, by the way, when they get married. They are throwing themselves onto someone going, I think this is going to be all right, but I don't know. Please, would it be okay? Really, even though people say, oh, she's the one. She's the one. She's perfect. She's going to be amazing. They are lying. As anyone who's been married for any time will tell you, you are operating by faith. You're going, I've assessed this person. They seem to be, this is very unromantic, isn't it? I've assessed this person. They seem to be okay. And I think I'm going to go for it. But over time, the more you spend with someone, the more you realize, oh, actually they are. And they can be. And there are things that they can change that I can change. And we will become closer together as we grow in our faith of one another. So it is actually with Jesus. So then, back to the question. Why believe in him in the first place? Why actually take that initial step to place your life in his hands, to believe that he is true? Well, people come on Alpha with various different ideas about what Jesus was actually like. Some people don't think he ever existed, but for some reason uh, we talk about him uh, at things like Christmas. He's a sort of Christmas tradition, like Christmas ham and Christmas presents and Christmas gifts and Christmas arguments is what you do at Christmas, but no other time. Other people think of Jesus as this sort of uh, effeminate, uh, slightly wimpy person. If he threw a tennis ball, he'd probably throw it like that. Uh, not really engaged with the whole of life, floating above the surface of the earth, wearing a dress, looking after small animals, but pretty ineffectual. Some have never really thought about Jesus at all. Other people, for reasons that may pass them by, act incredibly aggressively whenever Jesus is raised in conversation. Some people feel like he's uh, perhaps somewhat narcissistic, demanding people's adoration and love. Some people have uh, claimed Jesus as their sort of social or political spokesman. During the 60s, he was taken to be a sort of revolutionary leader by many people, a kind of Che Guevara type of person uh, leading people out of captivity. And I think if we were to go out on the streets today to ask our average LA person, Jesus would probably be most often put in the category of wise philosopher or guru. He's a kind of new age teacher who had some right on politically correct things to say about tolerance. Now, Whilst commonplace and totally understandable for lots of reasons that people hold these beliefs, they don't actually really stack up when we consider the evidence of who Jesus actually is. Firstly, the question of his existence. Let me say this, there is infinitely more evidence for the life and teaching of Jesus than pretty much the rest of the whole of classical antiquity put together. Alongside the New Testament documents, Jesus is attested to by Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, by Tacitus, by Pliny and Suetonius, first century Roman historians. And the evidence is therefore so overwhelming of Jesus' existence that he was this person who lived at this time, who said these sorts of things and uh, had this impact on the world that no historian, atheist or not, would have any doubt that Jesus was a real historical figure. Now, of course, we know the most about Jesus from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John found in the New Testament. And Jewish historians at the time would collect four lives of a figure that they wanted to depict, and they would let the reader synthesize these different accounts in their own mind. And so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the texts as we have them today were written down about 30 years 
after Jesus's death. So well within the lifespan of those who knew him, heard him teach and spent their time with him. And they were all the gospels based on eyewitness accounts of those who were closest to Jesus. Now, there are, of course, discrepancies between the different accounts and the gospel writers clearly had uh, theological and editorial concerns in their writings. But that didn't mean that they felt free to therefore make a whole load of things up. And in fact, other parts of the New Testament attest to the central parts of Jesus's life, his um, teaching, his death, uh, the claim of his resurrection. Uh, and they are even earlier, within about 15 years of Jesus's death. So the beliefs about Jesus are extremely early. There is no ugly great ditch between what Jesus did and what Jesus did being written down. The issue is not whether Jesus did and said the things that he did and said, but that he did and said the things that he did and say. That's the problem, because what Jesus did was so utterly extraordinary. Here is a little taster. Jesus forgave people's sins. I know this may be commonplace to us, but in Jewish understanding, the only person who can forgive sins is Yahweh God. And to speak in these terms is blasphemy of the highest order. Jesus also claimed to be without sin himself. Again, Judaism, only Yahweh is sinless. And at the end of his main bit of ethical teaching, Jesus says this, anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise. He didn't say anyone who listens to God's teaching and obeys God's wise. He said anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys me is wise. He also said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. Jesus was happy to be worshipped. Donald Trump. Now, the Donald. The Donald is someone I think we could all agree who has quite a high opinion of himself. I'm not making any political points. I'm just saying something that I hope we can all agree on. Donald has quite a high opinion of himself. I think even the Donald, even the Donald might find it slightly odd, slightly embarrassing if people genuinely started bowing down and worshipping him as the one true God. Maybe not, but I think he might. Jesus, though, was more than happy to be worshipped as God. Most religious leaders point, them, point people away from themselves and to God. Jesus, the perfect example of humility, nevertheless told everyone it was all about him. He was also happy to have prayer directed towards him and commanded people, in fact, to pray in his name. Jesus invited people to put their faith in him, not in God, in him. And he praised them when they did. Jesus taught that what people did to him, they did to God. But, of course, this didn't make Jesus aloof. He spent the majority of his time with the unlovable, the social, political and religious outcasts, those who had been discarded by everyone else, told they were scum, told they were nothing, told they were dirty, told that they didn't really belong in society at all. It's those people, those are the ones that Jesus decided to spend the majority of his time with. He dispensed grace and kindness to those who had never received it. He washed his disciples' feet. 
And Jesus is also said to have enacted his claim to divinity in various miraculous ways. He fed 5,000 people. He walked on the water. He calmed a storm. Jesus has extraordinary supernatural power to heal the sick, free people from evil, and raise the dead. He also appears to fulfill hundreds of Jewish prophecies written centuries earlier, including prophecies concerning the uh, nature of his birth. And it's quite hard to manipulate the nature of your birth, having not actually been born yet, isn't it? Now, the Gospels do, of course, present Jesus as being fully human. He worked, he ate, he experienced human emotions like anger and sadness. But the Gospels also report the miraculous supernatural elements of Jesus' life in exactly the same way. Not as sort of mythical strange things, but as pure historical fact, just like when he walked somewhere. Now, when I started um, exploring Christianity, I read through all of the Gospels. And I found Jesus so compelling. It was like all of a sudden the Bible became something. I tried to read the Bible before. I'd hated it. Uh, and I put it down. I thought, I'm never touching that again. It's the most boring, judgmental, weird thing in the whole world. I don't understand it. No, thank you. And then I started reading the Gospels and I saw Jesus. And it was like he leapt off the page. And I thought, this man is incredible. This is so compelling. Can't get enough of it. And so I'd read them over and over again. It was like I would go to bed. I'd go, I'm going to bed. And I'm going to read the gospel. I get a chance to read the gospels. And so I'd read the gospels because I found Jesus so compelling. I wonder what you think of him or what you have grown up thinking of him. Having said all that, though, despite finding him more and more compelling, I know that at the time I would have been able to go, yeah, but it was a nice story, wasn't it? And you can't actually put your faith in it. You can't actually believe in it. There's got to be more to it than just that. It's just a nice story. But then I um, heard a talk about the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And I'd never considered the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. But I found this so compelling that even though I was still unsure whether I actually wanted to believe in this whole thing, I found that I could not not believe in it because I was compelled. I was convinced. That's what got me. None of my friends were Christians. I didn't tell them I was going to church. I didn't want any of them to know I was going to church. When I finally told them to go, I was going to church, they said, are you going through a stage? Are you okay? They thought I was having a crisis. Maybe I was. But the point being, I went. And I, uh, but I believed because I couldn't not believe. I found it compelling. To be a Christian is to be compelled by it. So, with that in mind, I wonder whether I can, for the last 15 minutes or so of this, present that same evidence to you and you can decide what you think about it. Would that be okay? Um, when I left university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I ended up going into advertising, which was fun. But at one point I thought I could be a lawyer. Now, I couldn't be a lawyer. I would be awful at law. I would be terrible. I don't really like details. I don't like reading that much. But I thought I could be a lawyer. Uh, and that has always stayed with me. And so this is my chance to be a lawyer. Just humour me. Indulge me. I am going to be a lawyer. I'm going to present my case. And you can be the members of the jury. Would that be all right? No one seems that excited about this. <laughs> so, members of the jury, here is my case. Decide what you think. Because it's the resurrection that is, in fact, what all the very first Christians considered to be the basis of their faith. 
It was what their faith stood or fell upon. The early church leader, the Apostle Paul, makes this point. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And this is why I think the most important question in the whole world is, did Jesus rise from the dead? So, members of the jury, these are the facts, agreed by friend and foe alike, just to start off with. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem under the authority of Pontius Pilate around 33 AD. Very soon after this, his followers began to claim that he had risen three days later and appeared to hundreds of different people on various different occasions. So, how then, members of the jury, given that those are the facts agreed by friend and foe alike, are we going to explain these facts? I want to suggest three alternatives. Are you ready? Alternative number one. Jesus wasn't actually dead in the first place. Flogging and crucifixion, though, were enough to kill most people. A Roman flogging was actually meant to beat you within an inch of your life. Many people died actually just from the flogging. And even if, nevertheless, Jesus had not died on the cross, even if he'd managed to display some sort of supernatural strength to get through it, to have his side pierced, to um, be wrapped up in uh, all these bandages like a mummy, loading his body down with pounds and pounds of spices and then sealing him in an airtight tomb for a couple of days would have probably finished off the job. How could he, having experienced this flogging, this crucifixion, this piercing in the side, this being sealed in the tomb, then free himself from that, roll back this stone, overpower the guards who had been stationed there, appear to his disciples and go, hi, I am the Lord of life, without having access to the sort of medical procedures that even now uh, would not necessarily uh, give him any vitality. So alternative number two, members of the jury, Jesus was dead, but the disciples stole the body. Now, this has always been the claim of the Jewish religious authorities, and it is referred to at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Guards, as I said, had been posted to keep watch over the tomb to ensure that no one could tamper with or steal the body. When it becomes clear that Jesus' body is gone, the religious authorities tell the guards to say the disciples stole it. The problem, though, was with this claim the Roman guards, they were told to say, you were asleep, weren't you? Roman guards never fell asleep. As a strange quirk of history, we happen to know a huge amount about what happens to Roman guards when they do bad things. And it is not pretty. It is being burnt alive to, being, um, uh, to being having their skin ripped off if just one of them falls asleep on duty. The idea of all of them falling asleep on duty is just not probable. But the most important thing about the religious authorities' claim that the disciples stole the body is that it proves that neither they, the Jewish authorities, nor the Roman authorities had the body. If they had had the body, when this ragtag bunch of disciples started proclaiming, he's alive, he's risen, he, you tried to kill him, but he's alive, either the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities could have gone, oh, that's interesting you think that, isn't it? Because here, here is his corpse. Throw it down in the marketplace. He's not very alive, is he? He's in fact 100% dead, still dead, 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 dead. There he is, go away. But they couldn't do that because they didn't have the body. 
Jerusalem uh, was somewhat like uh, it is now back then, uh, a, a sort of hotbed of religious and social unrest. The last thing the Roman and Jewish authorities wanted was a bunch of people going around claiming Jesus had been raised from the dead and inciting all sorts of uproar. In fact, the reason that he had been put to death was to try and quash this thing that was causing so much upheaval in the world. Producing Jesus's corpse would have immediately put a final end to any claims that there is any life in this belief system at all, because look, he's not raised from the dead, he's dead. But they couldn't because they didn't have the body. So perhaps the guards weren't asleep, but the disciples overpowered them anyway. But these are trained professionals of the Roman uh, army we're talking about. The disciples had not been expecting Jesus to die on the cross in the first place, and when he did, they were disillusioned and leaderless. As such, they were in no position to gather together and decide that we're going to fight anything. They had the opportunity to fight, and they didn't take it. So, that's alternative one and two. Alternative number three. Jesus was dead. The disciples did not steal the body, but they did invent the resurrection. Again, the disciples, though, were not expecting a resurrection. And this theory doesn't account for the empty tomb, which any alternative theory needs to account for. In any case, the disciples deliberately inventing the resurrection is psychologically improbable. Do people die for what they know to be untrue? Particularly, do people die for something they know to be untrue that they unequivocally know to be untrue because they were the ones who made it up in the first place? Now, people die for lots of reasons, but what unites them is their wholehearted, sincere belief in the truth of what they are dying for. Now, we may not agree with what they are dying for, but there are some highly principled people in the world who will give their lives to things that they believe in, but what unites them is that they truly believe. Surely Peter, who was crucified upside down, sincerely believed in what he died for. And furthermore, to invent an incredible lie of this kind. And I mean, we're not talking about a small lie here, not a little white lie. This is an absolute whopper of a lie that Jesus is raised from the dead. Surely to invent that would have gone against the whole force of Jesus' teaching, which we can read for ourselves. And it's utterly inconsistent with the disciples' own teaching. It tells us 187 times that Jesus is the truth, that Christianity is the truth, and it exhorts Christians to tell the truth in all circumstances. So to have that whole teaching based on a massive, massive lie does not seem to stack up in any way. So, fourth and final alternative, members of the jury, how are you doing? Jesus did die. The disciples didn't steal the body. The disciples didn't invent the resurrection claim. But the disciples were simply deluded. The delusion theory, though, falls down for a number of reasons. To begin with, delusions are highly subjective. The medical evidence is that if I am delusional and truly believe that I am Optimus Prime, leader of the Autobots, it is highly unlikely that if you are delusional, you will believe exactly the same thing about me. You are probably more likely to think that I am Amazon Prime, 
rather than Optimus Prime, leader of online uh, retailing and tax evasion. The medical evidence is that people do not hallucinate the same thing at the same time. The resurrection claim, though, encompasses several appearances to large numbers of people at different places and on different occasions over quite a period of time, all saying exactly the same thing. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And again, the idea of a mass delusion does not account for the empty tomb, and any alternative theory has to account for the empty tomb. And finally, it doesn't account for one other vital piece of evidence. Lots of people die for their beliefs. There are some very principled people in the world. Peter was not one of them. How do we know? Because Peter had the opportunity to die for uh, Jesus, for his belief in Jesus, when Jesus was arrested. But instead, we hear that he ran away, he was confronted by a 13-year-old slave girl, and he denied knowing Jesus at all. And yet, Peter later becomes a fearless preacher of Jesus in the face of torture, imprisonment, and ultimately his own crucifixion. He went from being completely unprincipled to so principled that, as I said, he was crucified upside down for his belief. Something clearly happened to Peter in this time. What was it? Fortunately, Peter tells us exactly what it was. This Jesus, he says, whom you crucified, has been raised from the dead, and we are witnesses. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. What changes Peter from deserting coward to fearless preacher is not delusion, but rather his own personal experience of having seen with his own eyes the risen Jesus, and he cannot help say that he's been risen from the dead. Now, if I were to die for my beliefs, they would be my beliefs. They would be my faith. Peter, on the other hand, died for what he had seen with his own eyes. So then, members of the jury, the most important question in the world, did Jesus rise from the dead? If he did, it explains and corroborates all the supernatural things he did, the miracles and the healings. I was talking to my wife about this. Now, Hannah's been a Christian for a very long time. Don't let it, this worry you about her faith. But she's saying, the, the one thing I just can't get my head around is the virgin birth. I just can't do it. I cannot do the virgin. Everything else, I'm fine with the virgin birth. That is a real, what? That is a real stickler. She's fine. Uh, but I, the point being, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, all the other miraculous stuff just falls into place because our faith is miraculous from start to finish. The miraculous is us. If Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, then the whole of the universe is open to him because he is God. It vindicates him. And it justifies also everything he says about himself. I am the way and the truth and the life, as I said last week. I am the resurrection of the life and the life. Importantly, it gives us, right here, right now, in 21st century LA, historical objective reasoning to put our faith in him. This is not actually about whether it makes you feel great. This is not actually about how often he will answer your prayers. 
This is not about, I'm so sorry to say, whether he will help us win Oscars. He's reserving that just for me. Uh, I've been praying for that and I'm going to get one. What it is, is cold, hard historical evidence. He is the risen, eternal Son of God. He is the meaning of life. He is the one who has made himself known so that you can put your faith in him, so that you don't need to question any longer whether God exists, what he is like, what he thinks about, because he has become known and he has shown himself to you and he wants to begin and continue and deepen an experience for you of who he is. And it has huge implications if he proved his divinity by rising from the dead, how much more weight does it then give his promises? Promise to give you meaning and purpose. Promise to bring life in all its fullness to your actual experience. Promise of eternal life. Promise of healing and restoration and forgiveness and freedom. Of more about this next week. But it also explains all the stories. 2,000 years of stories, extraordinary stories of Jesus, the resurrected Lord, acting in time and space, in historical reality, doing extraordinary things because he's alive, because he's miraculous, because he's supernatural, because he's real. The book of Acts is a record of the very first Christians continuing to do the work of Jesus. They preach the gospel, they heal the sick, they see the lame walk, they see the blind see, they see the dead rise all in Jesus' name, all in Jesus' power. And it carries on throughout Christian history. In every decade, in every century, countless examples of similar stories. This is what really excited me about the faith. This is what really got my juices going, was, oh my goodness, this is not just about a belief system. This is not just um, saying my prayers, doing the right thing, trying to be a moral person, trying to follow Jesus. This actually has an impact on people's lives. It's why I do what I do now. It's because I can see Jesus change people for the better in small and big and life-changing ways. And I, I always tell this story at this point uh, because it's the one that means the most to me. I have some other stories, but I'm sorry if you've heard this story before, but I will bore you again. But other people, it might be interesting for you to hear this story. So um, I took this seriously. I thought, well, either Jesus is real, and I do believe that he's been resurrected, or he's not. But if he's real, it means that surely he can do extraordinary things now. So I will pray for people. And I started praying for people. And I didn't see anything for a long time. But I carried on praying for people, thinking if I pray for people, maybe God will do something amazing. I went to Belgium. That was a mistake. Do not go to Belgium. Very boring country. Apologies to all Belgians. Are there any Belgians here? I'm very sorry. Uh, Belgium. I went to Belgium to do a Christian conference. I was relatively new to this whole thing, but they'd invited me to talk to them about the Holy Spirit. So I went to Belgium and I talked about the Holy Spirit. And they, which may not be a surprise to you, did not like me. Uh, they really didn't like anything I had to say, and it went terribly. A whole weekend of me talking to a room of people who did not want to hear what I had to say. So by the end, I gave up. And on the Sunday, where there was a church service, where I was still, and it was like I was slated to speak, they'd organized me to speak, they didn't want me to speak, but they still had to have me to speak. I went, let's just put everyone out of their misery. My colleague will speak, and they were like a huge sigh of relief. My colleague spoke, and she did a wonderful talk, and they didn't hate her. Uh, so I was quite depressed because nothing had really, I hadn't really uh, 
anything had really happened that was um, particularly exciting. I felt a little bit like, why am I here? Uh, and I just wanted to go home. And then as I was leaving uh, the Sunday, I felt like God said, go and pray for this woman. Sometimes I feel like God speaks to me. And I felt like God said, go and pray for this woman. There's a woman just sitting by herself on her, on her own. I thought, okay, I'll go and pray for her. Uh, uh, she, uh, I asked her to stand up and as I was praying for her I felt like God say she's holding some pain in her stomach I want to heal that say that, um, God is, that I'm going to heal her so I said would you mind if I put my hand on your stomach I'm going to pray for you um, to, uh, that God would heal this pain uh, she let me put her, my hand on my, her stomach. I thought this is, she, she started crying quite a lot. So I thought there's probably some emotional pain and maybe this is sort of where it feels like she's holding it and seemed to be a sort of release and prayed for, for a while. It was quite powerful. Uh, I didn't really think much of it. I got home on the Monday. I got a email from her uh, and she was well known in the church. The whole church had been praying for her. Uh, she had been diagnosed with breast cancer in both breasts and the cancer had then spread to uh, her neck, to her spinal column, and all the way to her pancreas. I don't know much about cancer, but I know that pancreatic cancer can be um, some of the most um, serious and terminal. Um, she was uh, expecting to um, go through a series of um, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. The doctors didn't give her much um, hope, but she went for uh, an MRI on that, uh, Monday morning. Um, the MRI machine the doctors thought must have broken because it wasn't recording properly so they sent her to another hospital for another MRI and she had another MRI which recorded exactly the same thing. The tumour count in her whole body had dropped to 25 which is within the normal range of a healthy person. A secondary cancer in her spine completely gone. No idea why but it had just gone. Secondary cancer in her neck completely gone. The pancreatic cancer, completely gone. No cancer in her pancreas anymore. The doctors couldn't believe it. They didn't know what to say. After the second scan, they saw that it had all gone. The, she was due to have a double mastectomy, but the cancer they found was so reduced that there was none in one breast and just a tiny little bit in another breast. So they did, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> Um, just a, a small um, removal of some localised cells there and then on the spot, all gone. I'm still in touch with it. It's fine, cancer free, 15 years later. I wasn't even praying for the right thing. But it made me realise that when Jesus appears on the scene, he's not doing it just so people worship him. He's not doing it just because he wants everyone to know that he's God. He's doing it because he wants to change people's lives by his supernatural power. Now, I pray for healing and I pray for a lot of healing, but I pray for healing knowing a, um, the importance of a highly robust theology of suffering. We're all going to die. There are some horrible things that happen in the world. I've prayed for lots of people who have got worse when I have prayed for them. It breaks my heart. I don't mean to belittle anything. And yet, I keep on praying for healing because I believe in the power of the resurrection. Because I believe that Jesus rose from the dead 
to triumph over all the things that hold us back and restrict us. So, members of the jury, what do you make of it? Did Jesus rise from the dead? And if he did, what impact should this make to our lives? How could that actually change our experience of faith, our experience of life, our experience of who we are in light of these truths? Now, you don't have to. You don't have to believe it. You can have lots of reasons not to believe it. But I wanted to at least give you reasons to believe, perhaps reasons that you may not have heard before. So um, that's enough of me.